This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It is the last day of March. Can you believe it? March 31st. It just seemed like it was December a minute ago. And here we are. I'm really grateful that the really cold weather is gone. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Wednesday, and all I can be thinking about tonight is poor Joseph. I'm going to be teaching Genesis 39 and 40 tonight, um, where Joseph is, again, being accused of something that he didn't do and paying a price for doing the right thing. Sometimes we don't think that's fair. Um, but but always, always, always finding favor with God. So that's our message tonight on our Wednesday night Old Testament Bible study. Uh, Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow. Uh, in the date day edition, uh, I'm going to be her April Fool. Uh, it's April Fool's Day, and she's going to be hanging with me because she's certainly no fool. Uh, ladies, if uh, you have any questions or need any encouragement, that would be the day. And then remember that uh, Friday, Good Friday, we have a uh, a very, very special Good Friday service here at Calvary Chapel, and uh, I trust it will be special wherever you are going to church. Uh, but we celebrate the holiest weekend of the year as we approach an empty tomb that we will all of us celebrate on Sunday. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm going to go to a question, then I'll come back and talk about... Um, Jesus is day four uh, during his week of passion. Let's go to Converse. Ron is on line one. Ron, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Hi, Ron. Yes, sir. I have a question. I've called in regards to Revelations before, and I just, and I'll probably call again because I know that uh, if anybody can, can, can bring light to this subject, I know you can. This is in uh, regards yes, to Revelations and the, um, 
I believe it's referred. She's referred to as the uh, the harlot of, of Babylon. You know, cloaked in purple and these rich colors. And you hear a lot about the papal church or the or papal Rome. Um, what correlation is there? You don't always hear it. Is the, it always seems to come out papal church, papal Rome. What what kind of correlation? does the Catholic Church play in, in relation to all of this that I hear about this this harlot of, um, of, of Babylon cloaked in purple uh, yeah. the papal, and then the papal church and, and papal Rome and it seems to get close to what I think they're trying to say but it, it, nobody ever seems to really come out and specify <laughs> um, maybe I'm not or, or perhaps I'm not listening correctly yeah, I, I, you know, Ron. Okay, Ron. Thank you. I, I you know, um, uh, there, there have been people that come out and out and say that that the, the Catholic Church is the the woman that rides the beast. Uh, Dave Hunt, uh, the late Dave Hunt, uh, actually had a book called "A Woman Rides the Beast," and and he very brazenly uh, identified that woman as the Roman Catholic Church. Now, uh, I think that's unfair. It's unfair. Uh, while the Roman Catholic Church has all kinds of doctrinal issues, um, the, 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 the church headed by the false prophet during the Great Tribulation is not the Roman Catholic Church as we know it. Now, it will be the church, and Catholic being understood in the sense of universal church, not, uh, not Roman Catholic, but the universal church. And it will be located in Rome. The, the false prophet or the, 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 uh, uh, his headquarters will be in Rome while the Antichrist will be headquartered in Babylon. But, but Rome is clearly identified, the city of seven hills, and, and it's clearly identified as the, the home of the church. It will not be the Roman Catholic Church as we know it. One of the things that's going to happen in the rapture of the church, Ron, is that born-again Catholics are going to get raptured and be with Jesus just like we are. Now, I don't think there's going to be a lot of them in, the, in, in comparison to the, the, the whole of the numbers of Catholics. But those who are born again, those who have actually accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, um, um, they're going to be gone with us. So then the church is going to take on a whole different character. Uh, it will be called church, called out ones, but in this case, they're called out by the Antichrist and by the false prophet. So when you get to um, the book of Revelation, remember that we're talking about an order that is completely different from anything that we understand. Um, the Antichrist is going to be the object of worship. Uh, the false prophet is also going to be worshipped, but secondarily to that of the Antichrist. And um, Ron, it's it's not something that's confusing in the sense that if you understand, you don't identify the Roman Catholic Church as we understand it with the church that will be in Rome in the last seven years of our time together. So thank you, Ron. Appreciate the call very, very much. I appreciate your questions. And I love the book of Revelation. A quick reminder, I'm going to be teaching it on Friday nights here. Um, probably we'll get to it sometime of early May. So uh, put that on your calendar. Thank you for the question, Ron. We have uh, Amy holding online, too. Amy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, some friends and I were discussing how Jesus actually left the tomb. Did he physically walk out, or was his body just transported? 
Well, the, the, the stone was removed. We know that. And we're not told how he came out of the tomb. But I know two things. I know, one, he didn't need any help. The angels weren't there um, to help Jesus, you know, roll the stone away and, and get out of the tomb. Uh, when Jesus went out of the tomb, um, we're not even told whether he went off before the stone was rolled away or after. Uh, and so, Amy, there's no really way, no real way for us to know the answer to the question. But what we know, as I said, is that he didn't need any help. He could have materialized right through the closed tomb, um, or he could have waited until the angels showed up and announced that this is uh, this is our mission from God. And as a result, uh, they rolled the tomb away, and Jesus, maybe to uh, some high fives with angels, walked out of the tomb. But there's no way that we we have any way of knowing um, which of those scenarios was the case. Wish wish there was more information, but there just isn't. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Amy. Uh, my my favorite thing about about the empty tomb is just when Mary Magdalene shows up, and the angels say to her, um, "Why are you looking for the living among the dead?" You know, a tomb, a funeral, a graveyard is a is a funny place to be looking for somebody who's alive. And then they make that wonderful proclamation: "He is not here; he is risen." I can't wait. I love that part of the story when we get there, whenever Easter comes around. Hey, one other thought before I talk about uh, Jesus' day four and during his Passion Week. And that won't take long today, but um, we need to remember always that this is a story, Easter, that needs to be read and reread, told and retold over and over and over again. It doesn't matter how familiar we are with it. This is the validation of our faith as believers. If Jesus died and we say, well, we believed him, he was a good man, he did miracles, but if he stayed dead, then we really have no faith. But the fact that he's alive, that one fact changed everything for the rest of time. So, Amy, thank you for the question. Again, there's just so many things that we won't know till we get to heaven, to be sure. But um, the earth quaked and darkness was pierced by a magnificent light and Jesus was alive. There's so much about Jesus' suffering and his ultimate resurrection that's kept secret from us. Details. We we like details. There's just no way to know the details. Thank you, Amy. Day four of Jesus, his Passion Week, and I, I refer to Passion uh, all the time uh, because it truly was his passion for for Ron and for Amy and for me and for everybody else out there. Um, he had a script to follow. Elijah and Moses appeared to him on the Mount of Transfiguration to tell him all of the things that were were going to happen to him when he went into Jerusalem. And after the heartbreak of Palm Sunday and then the next two days, Jesus spent day four in Bethany resting, 
I'm sure, weeping, crying. He would make preparations for the Passover meal, what we call the Last Supper. Paid attention to the details. And then he would rest. But you know, one of the things that would cause him great pain is thinking about Judas's betrayal. Because it was on this day that Judas was negotiating with the Sanhedrin to hand Jesus over. And I, I, I can't imagine how heavy his heart was on this day. You know, I think of a day of rest. Thursdays is my day of rest. Paul and I, we hang out together and, of course, we do the radio show. But other than that, we, we truly try to do nothing most of the year. And, um, you know, it's it's not a day of rest when my heart is heavy. And Jesus would have been so sad. He's still going to give Judas other chances. But, of course, Judas was committed and wouldn't take advantage of any of the opportunities Jesus gave him to ask for forgiveness. So it was basically a day of rest. He spent the night in Bethany. And then on day five, we'll talk about that tomorrow when we get started with the program with Paula. On day five, the speed of the week would increase dramatically. The tension. I'm sure Thursday as he got nearer to Friday, was the toughest day of all. Okay, with the time we've got left this half, let's go to questions. Reggie asks, Are the promises like in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven for me as a New Testament Christian or just for Israel? Reggie, the, the promises, they're very specific. Jeremiah the prophet um, and, and in other places through some of the other prophets. Um, he's dealing with Israel. Uh, we love it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, uh, not to harm you, plans to prosper you, uh, to give you hope in the future. We like those things, and we like to, to, to claim those for ourselves, but they're not for us at all. Now, the principle is we can understand that when we are walking with God, he will bless us. We will prosper, not financially. We're not talking about money. I think most of you know that by now. But Reggie, those are promises that are very Israel-specific. And this is a promise, by the way, that will be fulfilled, but not until the millennial reign of Christ on earth, after the Great Tribulation. So I know the plans I have for you. He God said this plan for Israel. They, they could have taken 11 days to get to the promised land instead of 40 years. But they violated the will of God, so it took them 40 years. At any point, Israel could have avoided the destruction by Babylon. But they didn't listen to Jeremiah. They didn't listen to Ezekiel. And whenever we do what we want, then we're not going to be in a place where we can be blessed. Romans chapter 12, first two verses, Reggie, are the principle 
of Jeremiah 29.11 for New Testament Christians. I beg you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and I would add your heart. And when that happens, we'll be able to test and approve what God's perfect, pleasing, acceptable will is. So, Reggie, we have greater promises in our New Testament. I often say that in just one chapter, if I if I was, you know, on a island shipwrecked or something, and all I could have was one page of the Bible, I'd take Romans chapter 8 out of my Bible. The promises are extraordinary. I'm going to be teaching Joseph tonight who had all kinds of difficulties, things that he suffered that were no fault of his own. When he did what was right, then others did to him that which was bad. And yet he knew who God was and he didn't waver. There's not a hint of Joseph whining. Well, the same thing is true for you and for me, Reggie. We don't have to have Jeremiah 29, 11, magnet on a refrigerator. We've got far greater, far more glorious promises that are available for us that we can take literally rather than just taking the principle of a promise given like Israel. We always in our reading, in our, in our studying, Reggie, we've got to separate Israel and the church. If you don't do that, you lose the, the, the practical import of what the Bible is saying to us. Israel is Israel. The church is the church. And until the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth, never will the two connect. So thank you for the question, Reggie. I hope that makes sense to you. Here is an anonymous question, a heartbreaking one. Um, my wife wants me to pray with her. But to be honest, I'm embarrassed. I don't know how to pray like I should and can't pray as well as she does. Can I have some advice, please? Yeah, you know, Anonymous, I think I think we sometimes, we have a tendency to think of prayer as, as this super spiritual conversation. The, the prayer is just conversation. It's just talking to God. Now, here's the most important piece of advice I'm going to give you. Swallow your pride. And talk to Jesus. He said, except we become like a child, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. You want to, I don't know if you have kids, but if you have kids, listen to them pray. They'll show you how to pray. They get to the point. Their prayers are short. They're not afraid to ask. They believe what God has said to them for the most part. And if you're going to be obedient to God, and you love your wife the way Christ of the church giving himself up for her, then because she wants you to pray, pray. Pray. And you have to you don't have to say, Well, I'm embarrassed because I don't pray as well as you. Just pray, just talk to God. There's no right way, no wrong way to pray. If your prayer comes from a sincere heart, then God's gonna hear your prayers, and that's the only thing that matters. Now, one of the things I want you to consider here, Anonymous, is this. Usually when people say they don't know how to pray, it's because they don't pray on their own. 
I don't want to pray with other people because my prayers don't sound like other people's prayers. First of all, I said your your prayers don't have to sound like other people's prayers. But here's what you do. You just talk to God yourself. And you'll get used to talking to God. I don't mean that in a, a bad way or a negative or, or routine way. But, but you'll just get to the place where you get to know him better. You know, when you talk to somebody, you open up a dialogue, you pray, you listen. And that's what Jesus will do. But you've got to take the initiative to pray. And the more time you spend with Jesus, the less of a factor your pride will be. You want to worry about being embarrassed? Just pray. And I would plead with this audience, stop thinking of prayer as something that's mystical, that we've got to do a certain way, the way we hear people on TV or the way we hear other people in church pray. Just talk to God. That's what being real is. It's opening up your heart. It's being vulnerable. It's confessing your sins and your shortcomings. And so, Anonymous, the first thing you can do is start walking with God on your own and just saying, okay, Jesus, I'm embarrassed to pray because I don't pray enough. Forgive me of that. And create in me a desire to pray daily, continually throughout a day. And help me to do that in a way that will bring you glory and draw me closer to you. That's the very thing that God wants in his relationship with you. Now, two other things. It's the enemy who's pounding you with these lies. How you pray matters. Your prayers aren't like other people's prayers. That's just the enemy who who doesn't want you to pray, doesn't want you to talk to God. So, if you'll give him the opportunity, just get him, let him get to spend that time with you, then prayer will become something that's normal and it's just as simple as talking to him from a pure heart. But just talk to him. And never say no to your wife if she wants you to pray with her. Not just for her, but to pray with her. One other thing, Anonymous, Jesus gave us a model for prayer. If, if you're uncomfortable, you say, well, I don't know what to say. Well, just use his model. Our Father who art in heaven, holy or hallowed be your name. And then you just take that model and, and Jesus just gives you sort of a guideline, outline of prayer. And if you stay open to the leading of the Spirit, he'll fill in all of the holes. Give us this day our daily bread. You can convert that to a prayer that says, Jesus, thank you for giving me enough. Every good and perfect gift comes from heaven. You've blessed me with resources. I pray, Lord, that what you've given to me, I will be a good steward of. And that's just one example. And so you go through that outline for prayer, and it'll change you, I promise I, I promise you it will change you. Um, to all the men in this audience, one of the single biggest complaints that I get from people, or from, from women, is that their husbands won't read the Bible with them or pray with them. 
And that's not something that's difficult. They're not asking you to do something super heroic. They just want you to sit down with them with the Bible open and talk to them. And then when you're done reading the Bible, you read a chapter, let her read a chapter. Talk about it for a little bit and then finish with prayer. The beautiful thing about that model that I just suggested is that when you start reading, you a chapter, she a chapter, doesn't take long, or I actually prefer when when Paula repeats chapters. Now, she does the reading because I can't see, but um, um, when she repeats the chapter, and then if there's anything that needs to be talked about, we can talk about it, we can get on the same page, our hearts are being knitted together supernaturally. When you start with a chapter, It won't be long before you want to do two or you want to do three. Same thing with prayer. You start praying with your wife. And sometimes it'll be wonderful, sweet, just faith-filled prayer. Maybe the next day you won't have as much to talk about. And it's just more practical. But you're praying together as one flesh. And Jesus is there. So Anonymous... Do what your wife has asked you to do. You will actually stand before God on the day of judgment and give account of your stewardship over that ministry. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. Hey, I apologize for some technical difficulties we were having at the start of that last half hour. I thought it was just in my headsets, but it wasn't. So it is fixed because my producer is a genius, and now we are ready to go. Here is a question from Edward. Lot was not faithful. Is he in heaven? Uh, Edward, Lot is in heaven. Um, Lot may have been unfaithful, um, lukewarm, uncommitted. Um, but Lot, we know with New Testament evidence, Peter says that, um, in fact, describes Lot as righteous Lot, who was vexed, King James, in his spirit by all of the, the sin that was going on around him. So uh, we know that Lot believed. Lot was justified before God by faith. Uh, and because he was, he's in heaven. Now, rewards, crowns, probably not very many. But he made it to heaven, and um, um, if you read Lot's story, Edward, it doesn't appear to be anything righteous about him. He's always looking at the things that appeal to his flesh, um, always involved in the things of the world. 
In fact, his witness was so compromised that he couldn't even save his wife or his sons-in-law. Can you imagine being that ineffective in your own home? I hope, Edward, you can't, and I hope the the men in this audience can't. Uh, The truth is, some of us are living such compromised lives that we've lost any power in our witness at home. Um, Lot was what we would call a hypocrite, um, and people died because of it. So, Edward, that's the answer. Here is a question that came in from Richard. Uh, Pastor Ron, I don't really understand why Judas was treated differently by Jesus than Peter. Now, I'm assuming, Richard, because you don't say that you mean uh, at the end, Peter denied uh, Jesus three times uh, and Judas betrayed him. Uh, if you're looking at a King James, it says that Judas repented, but that doesn't mean he was sorry. All it means is that he was sorry things didn't work out his way. We have to remember that that Jesus knows the hearts of people. Um, Peter meant it when he said, if all the others betray you, I never will. I'm ready to die with you. Um, Peter meant it. He's the one that grabbed the sword and started swinging and, and cut off Malchus's ear. So he was, he was sincere. Um, he just overestimated his spirituality, his closeness to Jesus. Um, but, but, Peter repented. Peter ran to the tomb, outrun by John, but still he ran to the tomb and ran straight in. He was restored face to face with Jesus. He had to be honest. Peter, lovest thou me more than these, more than the fish, more than the other disciples? And Peter had to get brutally honest. He had to break his heart. Lord, I like you. I thought I loved you, but I like you. I, I denied you. At the end of that restoration, Peter was given the principal role in the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. Judas Richard was only sorry that things didn't work out. Judas seemed to have his own agenda. You know, he was stealing from the money bag that kind of gives us an indication where his heart was. Um, Judas um, was trying with all of his strength to manipulate Jesus into into taking his kingdom now. Um, He didn't like any of the plan to die on the cross and be raised from the dead. He, He didn't... He wanted his place in the kingdom of God. He was the one that I personally believe was behind most of the arguments, you know, the disciples arguing amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest in his kingdom. Judas is a man who, in spite of doing miracles, in spite of seeing everything that Jesus did, never really surrendered his will to the will of God. And that's why they were treated differently. One was truly repentant in a sense that I'm so sorry, I don't ever want to do that again. And the other was just sorry that things didn't work out. Jesus said he was a son of perdition, doomed to destruction from before the foundations of the world had been laid. Richard, that's Judas's end. 
So don't be confused by the King James word use of the word repentant. Um, just it was. I'm sorry it didn't work out my way. Here's an anonymous question. Oh, oh, got a phone call first. Okay, thank you. Where is it? Okay, here it is. Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Thank you for taking my call. I um, I have a couple things today. One, uh, the Chosen had the thing about the Samaritan woman, and I'm curious, will you explain the Samaritans, how they even became Samaritans, and are they still alive today, and is there animosity between them and the the Jews today, and, and where do they live if they're still there? The second thing is about the calendar, where it says B.C. and A.D., change the calendars and what is the ad for and then the third thing was when i was reading um in luke 5 verse 16 it would talk about how jesus would often go alone and pray i was thinking about what a relief it must have been for him to get to go and spend time alone with the father with knowing that he was up there with the father and you know just the whole Thing of getting to be alone with the Father, because you, you you say, you know, just be with Jesus, and those times that we're with Jesus, how precious it is. But I can't imagine how much more it would be for for the Lord just to get to be with the Father and, and pray mm. and kind of get a break from planet Earth. So yep. that's it today, and I'll listen to all your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. God bless you. Um, let me an- answer the last one first. That's near and dear to my heart. Um, it was so important to Jesus to spend time alone with his father that he often went without sleep. He would go out up to a mountainside all by himself, all night long, and pray. Um, early in the morning, uh, Isaiah 50 says, morning by morning, he gave me the word uh, uh, for, uh, for the instructed. Um, J- Jesus knew that he needed to be alone with his father. Remember, he said he never said anything his father, he didn't hear his father say, he never did anything he didn't see his father do. So it was in these times of prayer when Jesus was getting his instructions day by day. I love the fact that Jesus needed daily communication with his father. And if Jesus, who had no sin nature, needed daily communication, how much more do we need daily communication? So not only was it refreshing um, but it was essential. And, and remember, a lot of those times when he was in prayer with his father, um, he was getting bad news. He was being told the things that were going to happen to him. He was getting bad news. So th- this was just his source of strength. Jesus walked by the power of the Spirit. Remember, it is baptism. The Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. It wasn't a dove. It was in the form of a dove. That's how it was viewed. Um, And so Jesus did everything, Cindy, the way you and I do it. Not by might, nor by power, but by your Spirit, says the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus had to do. So if it was important for him to be alone with his Father, it was that time alone that he was with his um, uh, all, all by himself that he came back and selected his disciples, selected the 12, including Judas, who would who would um, be with him intimately 
for the next three and a half or so years. So that was essential time. Um, the the BC and AD question. I'm going backwards, Cindy. The BC and AD question. The the um, um, the, the Latin escapes me. It's uh, something Domingo. Anno Domini or Domini, something like that. Um, we we just translate that to after death, to separate the the time periods. Jesus established the calendars. Now, obviously, BC now has been changed by a world that hates Jesus to before the Common Era, um, um, and the AD is is uh, uh, just completely forgotten. It's it's after the Common Era. So um, I, that, that's that's all that is, and, and, and Cindy, that's just what humans have done to um, the intention of God to help us create sort of a separation in history. Um, God was a dispensationalist before Christ, after Christ. Um, that's the way they separated time. The question about the Samaritans. Um, the Samaritans were hated by Jews. They were half-breeds. Um, when uh, the northern tribes, ten of them, rebelled against God, uh, God had to judge them. He sent Assyria, and Assyria um, not only conquered them, but uh, the men took their women, and and um, the, the, the Assyrian women were were with their men. Uh, Jewish men, so that so that a, a new race. They were trying to 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 basically ruin or take away their Jewish identity. Make no mistake, that was a plan by the devil, and so the Assyrians were the ones responsible. And that bitter feud, that bitter divide, um, lasted um, a long, long time um, until, of course. Um, the Jews were scattered all over the world. So uh, where they are today, there's not a, a Samaritan race today. Um, we would consider them Jews, but they're scattered all over the world. In the diaspora, they were, they were scattered all over the world. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate the question very, very much. Here is the question I started on. Anonymous. Uh, I have heard your statement regarding women being physically abused at home that they should get out. What about verbal abuse? Anonymous, a couple of things. I, I want to thank you for the opportunity to, um, to to say this again. Any woman who is being physically abused at home needs to leave, and they need to leave now. I've heard, but God hates divorce, or where would I go? It doesn't matter. God also hates the fact that you're being abused physically in your home. So get out. Get out now. Um, don't think you can change him. Don't listen when he convexes him. Sorry, I'll never do it again. If you're being abused, you need to get out, period. And you need to get out now. Uh, one of the single sources of, uh, greatest sources of heartbreak here over the years. We have a, we actually have a place where we can send battered women uh, to, to live. It costs them nothing. And yet there's still too many who won't leave because they're, they, they they almost in their victimization they almost feel like they deserved it and that's many times how the abusive husband makes them feel. So um, I, I thank you for the opportunity to say that again publicly. Regarding verbal abuse, 
Um, verbal abuse um, is not grounds for divorce. God hates it. Um, ladies, if your husband is verbally abusing you, if he's a jerk, um, then you live a Christian life. First Peter chapter 3, the first five verses. You pray for your husband and let God deal with him. It's that simple. Um, you know, being a jerk or being married to a jerk is not grounds for divorce. I know in the world that we live in, well, God wants me to be happy. This shouldn't be. Of course it shouldn't be. But what God wants is for you to be obedient. He wants to use you to win your husband. And it's not just men that are verbally abusive. Believe me. But God hates it. It is sin. But it's not grounds for divorce. And when I say that, I get emails and letters and people think I'm, I, I hate women. Nothing can be farther from the truth. If you are in a verbally abusive marriage, man or woman, you're going to have to get so close to Jesus that he can be your source of comfort. You need to toughen up emotionally. If your spouse is an unbeliever and, and if they're verbally abusing you, then it is almost certain that they're unbelievers no matter what they say. Um, but God would have you hang in there. And you can trust that Lord will give you a way out or he'll change your husband or your wife if they're being verbally abusive. But you've got to do your part before God. Again, I realize that's a hugely unpopular statement. Um, you married him. Let God use you to save him. So I hope that makes sense to you. Oh, I don't like that question. 340-9585. Here's a question from Jennifer. Uh, Pastor Ron Dave Ramsey's being sued for firing a woman who was pregnant because she had premarital sex. How do you view the firing? Um, let me say, Jennifer, I'm not a Dave Ramsey fan. Uh, not at all. I understand the business model that he uses. I was a businessman before I got saved. And I don't think there's a lot of integrity. I do believe that uh, getting out of debt, uh, which is his, um, um, his beating the drum for, for being out of debt always, that's a very good thing. But you don't need Dave Ramsey to do it. I also have a problem with businesses... Um, who are run by Christians, but often don't operate by Christian principles. Now, in Dave Ramsey's case, uh, he has a contract that he has people sign. Um, it's very general, very vague about, about righteous living. And he has fired over the years... Um, I think, eight or nine people for having premarital sex. He views that as a sin. He's right by viewing it that way. Um, but Dave Ramsey's not doing a Christian business. 
And I think we've got to treat people better than that. That's that's how I view the firing. Um, I, I can't imagine we've had women here in the church that I love with all of my heart, and they got pregnant. And if 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 they're in ministry, then we'll set them out for a while. And we do that because we want them to recognize that what they've done is wrong. We want them to be repentant, genuinely repentant. But if they are, and when they are, then God is a God of many second chances. And I just think from a, a purely business point of view, if this girl, woman, was a productive employee and she was repentant for having premarital sex and I think it's pretty clear she understood that she would probably be let go for this she's suing him now Um, if she came to me and said I'm so sorry I I sinned I sinned against you I sinned against God um it is very unchristlike not to give them another chance. So again, I'm not a Dave Ramsey fan. Um, Dave Ramsey takes—I don't want to say that. Dave Ramsey targets Christians to help him in his business. I'm not a fan of that. So I, I know that's a little scattered. I'm just being careful with what I say. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is another anonymous question, Pastor Ron. Have homosexuals committed the unpardonable sin? Uh, the answer is no. There's only one unpardonable sin. That's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit about Jesus unto death. And if you die in that condition, then there's no remedy for your sin. But those who are practicing the homosexual lifestyle, they're still alive. They can still turn around and say to Jesus, I'm so sorry, please forgive me and empower me to live a righteous life. I want to walk with you and I want to walk for you. Now the problem with homosexuality in our culture is it's become such a hot button issue that most people don't think they're doing anything wrong. Now, I think they're denying the witness of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about some who are professing Christians. Every time they're involved in a sexual relationship, outside of the will of God, that's married between a man and a woman, or in this case, the context is homosexual sex, they know it's wrong. Now, they can convince themselves, they can harden their hearts. Then there's an enemy who's going to help that heart get really, really hard. But the truth of the matter is, is they don't want to stop. And that's why the homosexual activists have been so uh, insistent on Christians no longer saying that what they do is sin. But as believers, we've got to tell the truth. We've got to tell the truth in love. But anonymous, no, they've not committed the unpardonable sin. All they have to do is repent. God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Here's the last question of the day. It's from Dale. He said, did Jesus show favoritism to his inner circle over the others? That's James and Peter and and John, of course. 
uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, are brothers. Um, um, no, he didn't show favoritism in the, in the classical sense. In other words, uh, I love you guys more than I love the others. It wasn't that at all. Jesus knew that his disciples each had a role. And James and John and Peter were chosen for that inner circle assignment because they were the ones that were always pressing in, trying to get closer to Jesus. You know, you think about it in a church setting. God loves everybody who comes to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. And he loves them all the same. He's infinite. He can't love more or he can't love less. But here's what he can do. He can do more for and through people who press into him. I'm always telling our church, just be with Jesus. That's the answer to all the problems. Well, there's people that despise the fact that I simplify it like that. It really is that simple. And when you're just with Jesus, when you're talking to him, when you're doing what he wants you to do, when you're responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he can do more for you or through you than he will or can through other people that want to keep their distance. Imagine a Christian keeping Jesus at arm's length. Jesus says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. So here's the thing. We can all be in this inner circle. Dale, I love that thought. I'm, I'm in Jesus' inner circle. I want to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I want to see the things. I want to be invited into his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. And all I have to do to enjoy those privileges is to be with him not to push him out. I think the key to the sanctification process that we're all going through, being more like Jesus every day, I think the key for us, as well as the key to learning to be content in every circumstance, is just to push more of the world out of your life and bring more of Jesus in. And by that, all we have to do is follow him around. You abide in me, I will abide in you, he says. And then you're going to find that Jesus considers you his favorite. I love the fact that the Apostle John identifies himself in his gospel as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he knows that Jesus didn't love him any more than anybody else, but but John was the one that was always laying with his head on Jesus' chest. He was always closest, the youngest of all the disciples. He felt like he was Jesus' favorite. Honestly, Dale, there's so many days I feel like I'm Jesus' favorite. And on those days where I don't feel like that or I'm not aware of feeling like that, well, that's on me. It's not on him. So no, he didn't show favoritism in a negative way. Those who really pressed in, Jesus welcomed. And he could have had 12 of them that were his inner circle if they'd given him the opportunity. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Remember, Paul will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. May God bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel 
of San Antonio.